Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Giorgio Cafiero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics, based in Washington. An expert on MENA affairs, a writer and analyst, he appears frequently on Al Jazeera, TRT World, and BBC Persian. In addition to writing for Gulf State Analytics, he's a regular contributor to several outlets, including the Middle East Institute, Inside Arabia, and Responsible Statecraft. Our conversation today focuses on the Abraham Accords. We're going to talk about the impact they have had a little more than one year on from when they were signed. Giorgio, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you, Bill. Thank you for having me back on your show. Now, when you look back at the Trump presidency, painful as it might be for some of us to acknowledge, he had a diplomatic impact in MENA that really I struggle to think any other U.S. president has had. I'm speaking about the Abraham Accords, and perhaps you can remind our listeners about what they are and just how much Trump moved a needle that had really been frozen for a very long time. Yes, ever since the early 2000s, there had been mostly a consensus in the Arab region in support of the Arab Peace Initiative that the Saudi leadership put forward at an Arab League summit held in Lebanon. What did the Arab Peace Initiative, or API, say? API laid out the terms for the normalization of relations between the vast majority of Arab League members, which at the time did not have diplomatic relations with Israel, and Israel. And just so our listeners are clear, at that time, the only two Arab states that had formalized relations with Israel were Egypt and Jordan, which formalized relations in the late 1970s and the mid-1990s. So from the early 2000s up until 2020, like I said, there was this consensus in the Arab world, almost a near consensus in the Arab world in support of Arab Peace Initiative, which set out the terms for normalization. This would require the Israelis to bring themselves back to the 1949 to 1967 borders and grant the Palestinians a sovereign and independent state with East Jerusalem as its capital. So this would result in the Israelis having their state in 78% of historic Palestine, the Palestinians having a sovereign state in the other 22% of historic Palestine. Now, there's no doubt that throughout the history of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, there has never been any balance. Israel has always been the stronger party. Maybe the two leaders sat at the same table and their chairs were at the same elevation, but there was, like I said, this huge imbalance between the power they had. However, the near consensus in the Arab world behind the Arab Peace Initiative did give the Palestinians some leverage when trying to convince the Israelis that it would be in their interest to go back to the 49 to 67 borders, end the occupation and grant the Palestinians a state The Palestinians were always in a position to say, look, if you would go ahead and do so, you could have your uh, relations with the Arab world normalized. And the Israelis, however, did not make such grand concessions. And the Arab Peace Initiative was one that the Israeli leadership 
never accepted. And so Israel carried on with its occupation, and one of the prices that Israel paid for continuing the occupation and continuing to deny the Palestinians the right of self-determination was the fact that their relations with many Arab countries did not formalize. Below the surface, however, many Arab states, including the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, so on and so forth, established informal relations with Israel. So they did not have embassies in Tel Aviv. The Israelis did not have any embassies in those countries. But there was a lot of engagement, like I said, and relations did exist below the table. What the Abraham Accords did was to formalize the diplomatic relations between the UAE and Israel, as well as three other Arab countries, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, without the Israelis having to make any concessions whatsoever to the Palestinians. What we can basically say is that Trump was able to push these Arab states toward normalizing relations with Israel without any concern for the Palestinian cause, essentially getting these Arab states to abandon the Arab Peace Initiative. Now, Trump, when he proclaimed the Abraham Accords, that's back in September uh, 15th of last year, he said that several other Arab nations would join. And, and in fact, you've mentioned two, uh, Morocco and Sudan. And with this transitional, transactional tactics that, that he used, uh, he was able to bend the arms of, of both those countries. In the case of uh, Sudan, it was to drop the sanctions. In the case of Morocco, it was to uh, allow them uh, sovereignty over the Western Sahara. But he also claimed that Saudi Arabia would sign up. It hasn't happened, at least not yet. Uh, do you see it happening anytime soon? So there definitely is this trend toward normalization that we see in the Arab world. And there's no doubt that Saudi Arabia is a part of this trend, even though Riyadh has not yet joined the Abraham Accords. Maybe Riyadh will later, maybe not. Time will tell. But nonetheless, as I said, Saudi Arabia is in support of this trend toward normalization. But in my opinion... It is unlikely that at any point, at least with King Salman still on the throne, that Saudi Arabia would have some day in which it announces in a public manner that it has joined the Abraham Accords. What I think is more likely is that we are going to see Saudi Arabia taking some mini steps toward normalization. And it's important to realize that from the Saudi leadership's perspective, making any moves which would signal an official abandonment of the Palestinian cause comes with real risks. Saudi Arabia, unlike the UAE in Bahrain, is a large country, large in terms of geography, population, and there could be anger among maybe Saudi clerics or just even average citizens in Saudi Arabia, if the Saudis were to enter into the Abraham Accords. This is not what the Saudi leadership wants right now. So that has to do, of course, with the domestic landscape in Saudi Arabia. 
At the same time, when we're talking about the issue on the regional or the global level, to keep in mind that since the 1980s, the king of Saudi Arabia has formally been the custodian of the two holy mosques. Saudi Arabia has a leadership role in the Islamic world. And there are other countries, such as Iran and Turkey, which represent challenges to Saudi Arabia's position as the um, self-anointed or the um, you know, supposed leader of the Islamic world. And I think the Saudi leadership understands that Riyadh entering into the Abraham Accords could give more ammunition to Iran or Turkey when trying to challenge Saudi Arabia's position vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic world. Now, as we, I think, will discuss later on, there are certain ways in which the Saudis could benefit from joining the Abraham Accords, the ways in which the four countries that normalized relations with Israel last year have benefited from um, defense cooperation with Israel, uh, trade, investment, energy ties, uh, high-tech is obviously a, a big part of the picture. I think Mohammed bin Salman would like to see his country uh, have those gains and those benefits that could come with a normalized relationship with Israel. But again, like I said, those other factors, all those risks, I think are going to result in Riyadh being quite cautious on this issue. Mm, yeah, a, a, a bit of a balancing act. But, I, but I'm thinking that uh, when you look at what is happening with particularly the UAE, you mentioned the trade deals and, and the military uh, uh, accords. And indeed, there was this exercise recently in the Red Sea that uh, involved the Emiratis, the Israelis, the Americans, and did not involve the Saudis. Uh, but, but I'm thinking also in terms of tourism, because you have all of these Israeli tourists heading off to Dubai. And of course, MBS has pumped uh, mil hundreds of billions really into tourism and entertainment. I mean, he must look somewhat enviously at particularly the United Arab Emirates. And they have some, some issues, don't they, in terms of competition vis-a-vis -vis, uh, economic initiatives that MBS has attempted to carry out. Absolutely. As I said, I think MBS would probably like to see Saudi Arabia in the Abraham Accords. He has also said things in recent years about the Palestinians, which seem to suggest that the Palestinian cause is not important to him as it has been to uh, King Salman for, for many decades. So you're absolutely right to also point to tourism as another sector where the Saudi economy could benefit from a formalized relationship with Israel. Um, of course, you know, Saudi Arabia is not Dubai. There are certain things about Dubai that make it appealing to Israeli tourists that you don't have in Saudi Arabia. But nonetheless, I think your point is very valid that tourism is one area where uh, the Saudis could gain from entering the Abraham Accords. I think if Saudi Arabia were to ever enter into the Abraham Accords, which again, I want to stress is definitely not inevitable and there's good reason to think it won't happen. But if it would happen, I'm pretty sure that that would be after King Salman is no longer on the throne and we have a King Mohammed in charge of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. and, and, and meantime, the Israelis and the Emiratis are getting on like a, a house on fire. And it seems to me, Giorgio, they're very much on the same page when it comes to 
Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi crown prince and de facto leaders of, of the UAE, his efforts to sustain dictators and, and thwart the Arab Spring. Let, let's look at, at Syria. Would you agree that both the Israelis and the Emiratis want to ensure that Bashar al-Assad remains in place? Yes, I think that's definitely correct. Obviously, the UAE and Israel have different perspectives on the situation in Syria, but they have some common cause in Syria and other Arab countries. I think, by and large, the Emiratis and the Israelis share grave concerns about Islamist groups, and I think most experts on Syria would agree that had the Assad regime fallen at any time over the past 10 years, it would be Islamists in the who would be in the strongest position to uh, be in charge of a post-Assad Syria. That was a nightmare scenario for the Emiratis. Yes, they had problems with Syria being so aligned with Iran and being a patron of Lebanese Hezbollah, but at the end of the day, the Emiratis have wanted Assad in power if the choice is between Assad or the Muslim Brotherhood. I think it's fair to say that the same is true with respect to Israel. And in general, the Emiratis in Israel prefer secular and militaristic authoritarian regimes in the Arab world over Islamist regimes or even uh, democratic uh, governments that are pluralistic and uh, give Islamists some sort of space to operate legally in these countries' political arenas. And when we look at um, the coup that took place in Egypt back in 2013 or the coup in Sudan last month, we are definitely seeing this alignment of Emirati and Israeli interests vis-a-vis uh, -vis these, these countries that had uh, Arab, Arab Spring uprisings a decade ago. And, and for the Israelis, uh, I mean, what you're saying is they're much more comfortable with, uh, with a brutal dictator sitting next door to them in Syria than with any sort of a government that has the support of, of, of the people, those people who went into the streets back in 2013 and, and have suffered uh, extraordinarily since. Yeah, I mean, when was the last time that the Assad regime and Israel really had any serious confrontation that Israelis felt was a real security threat to their country? Well, that brings us back to October 1973. Ever since the end of that war, the um, Syrian front has been pretty quiet for Israel. The Assad regime, for all of its crimes and all of its authoritarianism, has been a known entity. It's acted rationally. It's, it's aware that Israel is a country with thermonuclear warheads and the most advanced military in the Middle East. The Syrian regime's interest has always been in its own survival, not the liberation of Palestine. And I think the Israelis were pretty pragmatic when they sort of said, look, for all our problems with Assad and our problems with the foreign policy of Syria, you know, the, the devil you know is better than the one you don't. And I think a long time ago, the Israelis determined that the survival of the Assad regime was probably the best, or maybe I should say the least worst outcome from Tel Aviv's perspective.
Yeah, gave them that, as you suggest, the stability. And, and of course, uh, the Golan Heights, uh, Israel, uh, with the blessing of Trump, declaring sovereignty over it. Uh, what could Bashar al-Assad do but uh, basically sit and watch that happening? He didn't challenge it. Exactly. Exactly. Now, coming back to a point that you made about the Accords and the uh, Palestinians, that basically their major achievement, some would argue, has been the abandonment of the Palestinian cause. The Emiratis argue that uh, it was they who halted the West Bank annexation and are therefore protecting the Palestinians. I'm just wondering what you make of that of that uh, position. This idea that the UAE entering the Abraham Accords and, and pushing it throughout the region was going to be of any benefit to the Palestinians was ruthlessly absurd. Obviously, the UAE has not you know, um, stated that they're abandoning the Palestinians. They're framing it as such that the Abraham Accords helps the Palestinians. But that's absolutely absurd. This notion that Arab countries normalizing diplomatic ties with Israel would result in the Israelis treating the Palestinians any better is ridiculous. We saw what happened with the conflict in May 2021. We saw, we've seen um, settlements continue to expand all the time. It's clear that the Palestinians have been a loser from the Abraham Accords. What Israel has taken away from the Abraham Accords is that they can become increasingly integrated into the Middle East's diplomatic fold without making a single concession to the Palestinians. I would argue that this has only emboldened the worst of the worst of Israeli behavior. Mm. What about other Gulf states? We've talked about Saudi Arabia and your sense that, and I agree with you, that it's unlikely that in the, certainly in the near future that the Saudis would recognize uh, Israel. But, but what about Oman, Qatar, Kuwait? I mean, what is the level of their current engagement uh, with the Israelis? And, and do you see them moving forward in recognition? I don't think that any of these three GCC states that you mentioned, again, Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman, would join the Abraham Accords. Uh, there are different reasons why I think that for each country, and we can just go through them right now. I would argue that the last GCC state which would enter the Abraham Accords is Kuwait. Kuwait's foreign policy is firmly pro-Palestinian, anti Israeli anti-Zionist sentiments are very strong in Kuwait. There is no appetite among any figures in the Kuwaiti government or Kuwaiti society for normalization. Uh, Kuwait has been extremely vocal in opposing the Abraham Accords. And one reason why this is the case has to do with the fact that Kuwait is a semi-democracy. There is a legislative body there, the National Assembly, which does represent the people of the country. And therefore, this democratic aspect of the Kuwaiti political system helps us understand why leaders need to be vocally pro-Palestinian. It's because they are more accountable to citizens in the country's political system than uh, what is the case in some of the other GCC states where there is really a true absence of democratic institutions? So, as I said, I think Kuwait could possibly even be 
maybe with the exception of Algeria, would be the Arab League member I have the most difficult time imagining entering the Abraham Accords. Now, to be sure, Kuwait would formalize diplomatic relations with Israel within the context of the Arab Peace Initiative, but we all know that Israel is not going to go back to the 1967 borders, so we can completely, I, I think we can be quite comfortable in ruling out the possibility of Kuwait following Abu Dhabi's lead on this front. When it comes to Qatar, situation is not necessarily all that different. Um, the Palestinian issue is one that matters to the leadership in Doha. It's also an issue that matters to average Qatari citizens. Um, of course, we should keep in mind that Qatar has engaged Israel a lot over the years. The Qataris are pragmatic. They understand that Israel is a reality in the region and they don't see any reason to pretend otherwise. But a formalization of Qatar's relationship with Israel I don't think will happen. And this, again, has to do with public opinion as well as elite opinion in Doha. Also, Qatar has a foreign policy that relies on soft power to a large extent. Qatar's narrative is that it is a GCC country that stands for human rights, human dignity, and the Palestinian cause is important to this narrative. In international forums, Qatari officials always raise the issue of Palestine. And for Qatar, just to sort of abandon the Palestinian cause in favor of a normalized relationship with Israel is just a little difficult for me to imagine. Um, I would also add one more point while we're talking about Qatar and Israel. The Israelis might actually have their own vested interests in keeping Qatar outside of the Abraham Accords. Why is that? Well, it boils down to Qatar's relationship with Hamas. While there have definitely been a number of Israeli commentators, politicians, and even um, in the U.S., there are many pro-Israel politicians and commentators who blast Doha for having a relationship with Hamas. It's not lost on the Israeli leadership that uh, Qatar has been able to at times keep a lid on things in Gaza by providing assistance to the Palestinians in the um, in the Gaza Strip, and it, uh, Qatar has been able to be somewhat of a diplomatic bridge between Hamas on one side and Israel and the U.S. government on the other. If the Qataris were to enter the Abraham Accords, I think that would throw off Qatar's relationship with Hamas, which, as I said, um, both the U.S. and Israel have incentives to see stay alive. Mm, interesting thought, Giorgio. And, uh, and Oman? Lastly, when talking about Oman, uh, we should keep in mind that the Omanis, like the Qataris, have had a pragmatic relationship with um, Israel for, for decades. Uh, we remember in 2018, October 2018, then-Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu came to Oman he was also not the first Israeli prime minister to visit the Sultanate. So there's definitely engagement between the Omanis and Israelis. 
Um, but Oman believes that the Palestinian issue is important and believes that the issue needs to be resolved before Muscat can join other Arab capitals in terms of formalizing diplomatic relations with Israel. Um, the Omanis, I, I know, um, believe that their country should always be a potential platform for Israelis and others in the region to come to to discuss peace. If the Israelis want to be serious one day about making peace with the Palestinians, I am positive they will always be welcome in Muscat to come there and to have talks which are aimed at resolving issues in the region. So Oman is definitely not hostile to Israel, but Oman, in my opinion, will not be uh, abandoning the Arab Peace Initiative. And just as is the case in Kuwait and Qatar, we have in Oman um, ruling figures in the government who care about the Palestinian cause, and there are, you know, there's widespread support for the Palestinian cause among the sort of uh, average Omanis on the street. So it would be very unpopular domestically to abandon the Arab Peace Initiative. And a final point Oman has always been the GCC country that has the warmest relationship with Iran. And the Omanis and Iranians definitely disagree about certain things and have different perspectives. Uh, but the Omanis have always been sensitive to Iran's security. Uh, and the interests of Iran are ones that Oman's government has, has cared about. And Oman has, over the years, avoided taking actions that would result in Iran feeling increasingly insecure. And Tehran absolutely views the Abraham Accords as a threat to Iran's security, as well as Iran's geopolitical position in the region. So, in the interest of creating serious problems for Muscat's relationship with Tehran, I think Oman is further incentivized to stay out of the Abraham Accords. But again, I will also say what's the case for Kuwait and Qatar, also the same for Oman. It's a country that fully supports the Arab Peace Initiative, and if the Israelis would ever go back to the 1967 borders, I'm sure they would welcome an opportunity to normalize relations with Israel. But that is so far away from where we are today. Mm, yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, but we have to say, as we started, uh, that, that Donald Trump achieved a, a huge uh, shakeup, uh, really moved that needle just in the conversation we've had thus far. But I want to take us to Washington now. And uh, although Biden, Joe Biden, is not pushing the accords, not doing the sort of transactional arm twisting that Trump did, uh, there is, would you say, a palpable sense of disappointment with his administration and its management of the meaning portfolio that it inherited from Trump and, and particularly with regard to the Palestinians. Yeah, so a few important points here. Any U.S. administration would welcome any Arab country normalizing diplomatic relations with Israel. And when Egypt did so during the Carter years. That was a big victory for the Carter administration. And likewise, when Jordan did so in 1994, that was a huge victory for the Clinton administration. And uh, both of those administrations did quite a bit to give 
Cairo and Amman huge economic incentives to formalize relations with Israel. So I just think it's important to realize that what happened with Trump and the Abraham Accords was not 100% unprecedented. That being said, of course, Egypt and Jordan are neighbors of Israel, so the dynamics were completely different compared to the cases of UAE, Bahrain, or say Morocco. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that the Biden administration would obviously welcome more Arab Islamic countries joining the Abraham Accords, and Antony Blinken has been crystal clear about this point. But as you said, I think the current administration would not engage in the kinds of extortion um, and arm twisting that the Trump administration did to achieve that outcome. So that is a difference which we should not dismiss as insignificant. Now, I do think, though, that while I made the case that the other GCC states, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Oman, are unlikely to join the Abraham Accords, at least anytime soon, I do think that in some parts of Africa, you have some Muslim-majority countries that might uh, join the Abraham Accords, and we should keep an eye on Mali, Mauritania, possibly Libya, depending on the outcome, the election, and who is going to be running the country in the future. So I think that is the part of the Muslim world where Israel might have its next diplomatic victories. To your question sort of about the Palestinian issue at large, um, I don't think there has been a huge change in Washington's foreign policy from the Trump presidency into the Biden presidency. The fundamental pillars of Washington's approach to the Palestinian question has not changed um, with new leadership. There is a bipartisan consensus in Washington in favor of uh, the Israeli occupation, and that ha that has carried on. And I think anyone who knew anything about Joe Biden and his past, anyone who knew anything about Kamala Harris and her relationship to AIPAC um, is not surprised whatsoever. AIPAC being the uh, very powerful uh, pro-Israeli lobby uh, in Washington. That's right. So just to sum up then, uh, the Palestinians really increasingly friendless and uh, the Abraham Accords very effective uh, in in supporting uh, the Israelis. Yeah, this has been a big boost to uh, Israel. It was a huge win for Netanyahu. As I said, this emboldened the Israeli right, which never wanted to make any concessions whatsoever to the Palestinians. This has been their chance to say we were right this whole time and the Israelis who were on the other side of the debate and said oh well if we would just um, agree to a two-state solution in line with the Arab peace initiative we could have diplomatic relations open throughout the Arab world well the Israeli right proved them wrong in the sense that that was not necessary to um, start having formalized relations with a growing list of Arab states. And, you know, it was significant from 
Okay, well, so Mauritania temporarily had normalized relations with Israel, and then those came to an end. So let's put Mauritania aside for a moment. From 1948 till 1979, the Israelis only uh, were able to uh, sign diplomatic deals with two Arab states. Then in the year 2020 alone, four more Arab states signed diplomatic relations with, with Israel. Uh, that that's very significant. Uh, Israel feels a lot less isolated in the Arab world as a consequence of the Abraham Accords. However, I think something that often gets lost on officials in Washington that we should keep in mind is that the Abraham Accords have had a rather destabilizing impact on the region in in various ways. When we look at Sudan. Uh, there was a democratic transition taking place in the country when Sudan uh, announced its decision to formalize relations with Israel. And the consequences of the extortion tactics used by the Trump administration to push Khartoum into a peace deal with Israel uh, severely undermined Sudan's democratic transition. The U.S. linked the removal of Sudan from the State Department's list of state sponsors of terrorism to nothing that had anything to do with terrorism, but to the status of Sudanese-Israeli relations. Those, that designation on Sudan was an outcome of ties that the Bashir regime had with various Islamist groups many, many years ago. Even at the end of Bashir's time in power, his regime did not have links with these kinds of quote-unquote terrorist groups. So my opinion is that Sudan should have been removed from that list once those ties were severed. Then once the Bashir regime was no longer, once Bashir was no longer in power, that was even more reason to remove Sudan from the list. But instead, the U.S. kept Sudan on the list until it did what the Trump administration wanted vis-a-vis Israel. When Sudan was on that list, that really hurt the country's economy because it made it so uh, you know, foreign investment was not coming in. Had the U.S. removed Sudan from that list earlier, the economic situation in Sudan could have improved and that would have boded positively for the democratic transition. Now we go to Morocco. The decision that Rabat made to enter the Abraham Accords was linked to the U.S.'s recognition of Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara. Well, what has that done? Well, that's reheated the Cold War between Morocco and Algeria. Now, there's an arms race between the two countries. There's more hostility between these two power centers in North Africa. And it remains to be seen what price the Maghreb region ultimately pays for the reheating of very intense friction between Morocco and Algeria. But those are just two examples right there of ways in which the Abraham Accords have actually played out on the ground in the Arab world. Now, for many people in Washington, none of that matters. They just want more countries to normalize relations with Israel, and they don't care about realities on the ground. How um, the Abraham Accords plays out is not their concern. They just view each country in the Abraham Accords as sort of a tally mark, and they want as many tally marks as possible. But I think this is a very misguided way to drive U.S. foreign policy in the region. Mm. 
Okay. Well, on that note, Jojo, uh, I will say thank you very much. Fascinating as ever having this conversation and um, look forward to having you back soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Giorgio Cafiero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics, based in Washington. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, Herb Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Herb Digest newsletter, simply go to herbdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period is ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.